Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. We designed it so it's kind of has like there's a couple of benches around it. So a group of students can be there with their docent for an extended amount of time and experience what's going on in this little area where the ground is more moist than in other parts of the marsh. Mm -hmm. This is such a small thing, but we designed a little turtle barrier that's continuous, so they cannot yeah. climb up into the campus and get trampled. It's, I think it's two feet high. It's not something that yeah. blocks any view. 18 inches. 18 inches, yeah. yeah. Just little things like that, that we had to think about just being neighbors with this natural preserve. But of course, I mean, all the healthcare points for access to views and nature and healing effects are, you know, just extraordinary in this site. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guests today are Gina Chang, AIA EDAC and Fabian Kremkus, AIA Lead GA, both principals at Co-Architects in Los Angeles, California. Gina is a healthcare design leader with more than 15 years of experience with a healthy understanding of the complex and unique nature of healthcare projects. No pun intended. Gina joined Co-Architects in 2007 as a medical planner and project coordinator for the Palomar Medical Center project which incidentally, we interviewed her about last year on Detailed. Recently, she has had leadership roles on projects for Kaiser Permanente, City of Hope, UC Irvine, and others. Fabian has worked nationally and internationally on a variety of projects in his 25-plus year career. These include academic and research facilities, secondary schools, hospitals, corporate headquarters, and my personal favorite, sports and entertainment complexes. Since joining Co-Architects in 1999, 
Fabian has served as the designer for major projects in Southern California and throughout the country. His enthusiastic devotion to the profession of architecture and craft of building is pretty infectious, and his approach to each project merges design sensitivity with a great attention to detail. The project we are talking about today is UCI Health at the Irvine Medical Center in Irvine, California. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.arcat.com podcast. University of California, Irvine, as you'll hear, has a strong commitment to sustainable design and construction. UCI Health's newest facility quickly presented an opportunity to make a huge leap forward by targeting the development of the listen carefully, of the world's first all-electric hospital. UC Irvine is part of the UC system, and there is a big pledge that they made to be carbon neutral by 2025. It's a nearly impossible task. (laughs) And healthcare facilities are exempt from a lot of these requirements, You have to put a lot of effort into making the waivers and proving why you can't do it. And for UCI Health, they decided instead to put the effort into trying to accomplish it. So that was sort of the the impetus there. And our client, Brian Pratt, he was there all along pushing, pushing the charge. Yeah. Not wanting to. I think avoid we had the, we had the full support of also the clinical group that and the CEO. I mean, yep. everybody lined up behind this target, mm-hmm. and that was really like that's unusual. But that's why it happened. Mm-hmm. I think that's the reason why it happened. Brian Pratt, who Gina mentioned, is the associate vice chancellor for design and construction services and campus architect at the University of California, Irvine, and is leading this extraordinary project. We also spoke with Brian, who shared the humble beginnings of the project, born from the desire to bring vital healthcare services closer to patients in South County and Coastal Orange County. It has a large hospital in Orange, a 459-bed hospital in Orange, and What was becoming clear was that location wasn't sufficient to serve South County and Coastal Orange County and to bring the health care that our patients need closer to home. You know, many of our patients are seriously ill with cancers and, and things like that and are going through intensive treatments. And so making their way 17 miles in traffic to our Orange campus was a daunting affair. And so UC Irvine Health established a and strategy to add a specialty hospital here near the main campus and closer to our patients in coastal and southern Orange County. So we worked on that, you know, criteria document and then went through the competition phase and and selected the team that is now designed and is now building the project co-architects and Hensel Phelps. UCI Health is a place where the principles of discover, teach, heal aren't just words, but a way of life. Brian provided unique insight into the decision to attempt an all-electric hospital. 
the choice to go all electric. Basically, it was a conscious choice by campus leadership that the UC system has a really robust sustainability policy that requires that there is no natural gas burned for new large-scale capital projects. But acute care facilities are excluded from that requirement. And what you have to do is you have to apply for a waiver and go through a process that says you are, in fact, an acute care facility and therefore you're exempt. Our campus leadership and UCI health leadership said, you know, rather than putting all our resources into getting a waiver, let's put our resources into doing what we should be doing, and that is eliminating the burning of natural gas, you know, fossil fuels for what you would typically do for boilers, for chillers, and and so on. And so we worked with Southern California Edison very early on to to establish that this would be all electric. The only fossil fuels potentially being burned would be the diesel generators in the event of a catastrophic regional emergency where the power goes down. You know, of course, this is a 24-7 acute care facility. It has an emergency department, and so it, it is not an option to lose power. So in the event of losing power, then we would have the diesel generators. The technology that really allows us to do this are heat recovery chillers that basically take the rejected heat and very efficiently re-entrain it into the system where heating is needed which results in a super, super efficient system and allows it to be all electric. Now, I will say that, you know, our aspirations were a little bit lower initially. We were not going to do all electric steam sterilization or humidification. And our design team challenged us and said, we think that's achievable. And if you really want to be all electric, then uh, you should strive to do that. And to their credit, they proved it, and we went that route. And there were a lot of really good reasons to do it anyway. Besides the sustainability piece, you no longer have a distributed steam system, which requires a lot of maintenance. You have local sterilization and humidification. So you don't have this labyrinth of a, of a system to maintain. So there were other good reasons to do it. And you know we really appreciated the design build team pushing us because our students, our faculty, our staff, our new recruits push us to do more and be more responsible from a sustainability standpoint, be better stewards of energy and the environment. Now, we have 23 lead platinum buildings on our campus, which is pretty unprecedented, probably, no doubt, nationally, but probably across the globe. We have eight lead gold buildings. So sustainability has always been a huge priority for us. But, you know, to really take that step up and, you know, as I mentioned, our recruits, our students, faculty, and staff challenge us to do more. They say, great, you know, 23 lead platinums, good for you. That You should be proud of that. But what are you doing about embodied carbon? What are you doing about scope three emissions? What are you doing about uh, fossil fuels and, and so on? And so we appreciate being challenged and we appreciate our design build teams understanding that challenge and, and taking it a step further and, and demonstrating to us that we can, in fact, do more. The real push on this was also so remarkable because it was on a very tight schedule. So the design efforts that 
we had to complete in order to do that were compressed in time. So that typically works against going with an innovative solution like this. Mm-hmm. And because you're going to have to adjust the design and a lot of the players don't know what they're going to, you know, new equipment, new this, new that. So people are generally want to go with the known status quo thing. And it was remarkable. The engineering team, the contractor, everyone kind of fell in line to pursue this. And that's why it happened. Everything had to go towards it because we had to really bring down all of the usage as much as possible uh, in order to make the finances work. It did cost more money, but a lot less than we had actually initially anticipated. Yeah. And there was a very large payback portion of that also Mm -hmm. because we were able to do heat recover from the steam generation and that brought down the operational cost tremendously. Also, there is when you have gas boilers in the plan, you have to have 24-7 dedicated personnel to oversee those. And with the heat recovery system like this and air-cooled chillers, and heat exchangers, you don't have to have that anymore because it's not as dangerous as a, as a boiler. And so that was also kind of like you're saving a little manpower, which is a good thing anyway. One last funny thing I'll mention. We wanted to get rid of all the natural gas usage, you know, because it's a fossil fuel and we wanted to not burn fossil fuels to get to the carbon pool. The last standout was the kitchen. Because people hate cooking with electricity. It just doesn't taste as good. And so we actually just a couple months ago found out that they finally relinquished and it will be an electric kitchen. We will be fully all electric, including the kitchen. That's amazing. Because we used to say, we're all electric. I didn't know about this. She just told me today. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's uh, wonderful. That's really great. Now, if you are considering an all-electric project, as Brian alluded to, time is a major consideration. So early coordination with your electric company is absolutely critical. The electric companies are, are struggling to keep up with the pace of things being all-electric. So it took several years for Southern California Edison to be able to supply what we needed for this project, and they already told UCI, if you build a second wing, it's going to take six to eight years for us to be ready for you on the grid. So, but luckily for this project, it happened in time. The electrical grid is in many regards uh, a bottleneck, right? Like also how we get sustainable power to the energy network in California. It's the grid that really, it's not necessarily the generation of the sustainable energy, but it's the grid itself that has its challenges. And then the storage of energy is also an issue. Now in California, I think right now the number is 45% of all electricity come from renewable resources. It depends on where you are, like that flexes, like Palm Springs, for example, has almost is entirely renewable energy because there's so much generated power in the vicinity. Beyond the ambitious feat of an all-electric hospital, The design of the UCI Medical Center is thoughtfully crafted with sustainability and human well-being in mind. The site bounded by the bustling Jamboree Road on one side and the tranquil San Joaquin Marsh Natural Preserve on the other 
offers a unique blend of challenges and opportunities. The task then was to seamlessly bridge the gap between the urban and natural worlds, leveraging nature to the benefit of the hospital and its occupants. When we looked at the site that just spans between the two, we said, how do you take someone from city to nature and get their, you know, get their body there, get their mind there, and just get all the benefits of being so close to that natural preserve? So at the front end, we've got uh, multi-level drop-offs, we've got all the parking so that you can come in, you can conveniently find your place. The entrance to the buildings, we call them the jewel boxes, they kind of glassy and they stand out they're well lit the biggest part of our site the biggest feature is this plaza that connects the two buildings together and you can see straight from the entry all the way down to the marsh unobstructed views in the center i think it kind of transitions to a more calmer environment on the end in the center we have a large area with these bird shade structures which i'm really excited about i think that's gonna be really cool they could cover, they provide shade for the central area, which I think can hold up to 200 seats at one yeah, point. Easily. Yeah. And then at the edge, close to the marsh, we have our outdoor spaces. We've got a ramp that goes down to the marsh. Eventually, it'll be connected to the rest of campus through paths and hiking paths and biking paths. Well, it connects already to the to the bike paths mm-hmm. on the bottom, right? Like, so that's... that's And in the future, even to more, right? Yes. Yeah. And there's... The exercise areas or yoga meditation areas on the edge. And there's even more curved forms, just getting it more tranquil as you get towards that. Yeah, there's a little piece of surgery waiting that has indoor and outdoor waiting. And the cafe is kind of located on the edge on uh, in the bottom of the hospital. The now carbon neutral cafe. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> they should, uh, they should uh, name it that. Right? Yeah, carbon coffee. <laughs> And CC. <laughs> no, but I think what's remarkable is that we really kind of constricted the vehicular access to the site by consolidating it all in the basic front end mm-hmm. uh, of it. And so the rest of the site is therefore all just foot traffic and calm and quiet, and you don't have, you know, cars cutting through, which was in the original bridging documents. Mm-hmm. The original bridging documents that we received had buildings with roads, you know, all connecting them, and we got rid of all of that. And so it's, uh, I think, really going to change how people will experience this. It will be more experienced like a resort-like setting rather than it being like this bustling healthcare campus that has activity everywhere. And that's really hard that's to do. Mm-hmm to like get the activities, you know, get a calm site. That's difficult. The sophisticated campus includes an extensive program. It's a crowded little site, but it's kind of perfectly situated. And on that site, there's a hospital, there's a cancer and ambulatory care center, a parking structure, a central utility plant. There's a variety of outdoor spaces. There's also a parking structure and a medical office building that's being done by a separate architect. So all those things are on that site. As far as healthcare spaces go, there's about half a million square feet of healthcare spaces, including, you know, 144 patient rooms. So that's a hospital side, 
There's a bunch of infusion and exam rooms and full radiology in the cancer center side. And beneath it all, there's a big platform that connects the two buildings of 21 ORs. So it's a big surgical suite and it kind of flexibly serves both the inpatient side and the outpatient side. It's kind of in a nutshell in terms of space that I forget anything. A huge imaging component also Mm -hmm. like there's a MRI. It has a full-blown emergency department, but it's not a trauma center. So it's not, doesn't have a heliport on top of the hospital. Gina and Fabian shared additional details and their design approach to some of the unique and notable spaces in the program. UCI's mission is discover, teach, heal. So even when they're building a hospital, they're trying to discover and teach and heal. So in the cancer center, there are two research labs that don't normally go in a patient care center. And one of them is designed to a a clean room level. It is used for cell therapy, brand new therapy, gets taken out of the patient upstairs and infusion, gets taken to the lab, manipulated, back to the same patient, same day, one roof. It's a truly, they used to call it bench to bedside. And this is bed to bench to bedside. I mean, it's like you're doing everything all in one building. It's mm-hmm. translational medicine at the, at the, at the edge, you know, yeah, right yeah. now. And UCI is doing that. So I think that's quite notable. Yeah. I would say the other thing that's really mo- remarkable is how the surgical core is designed. Mm-hmm. There's a clean corridor in between ORs where the supplies get typically brought in and then distributed into the different ORs. Here, this core has swollen to by like almost double to what it normally is because all of the case card storage is also in that core, which allows them to quicker turn over the ORs. Mm-hmm. And so time is money in, in, in this particular case, right? Like Because if you can be quicker for the next procedure, the better is your turnover in the R, the better is the utilization and all that. Mm-hmm. And it being the most expensive space in a hospital, this really makes a big difference in the bottom line and also probably in procedural outcomes because it's less stressful. And it's just more flexible. Yeah. Everything we designed clinically is about being ready for an in uncertain future. So that means flexible. You know, yeah. there's no other way to predict the future. You just have to plan for flexibility. So like Fabian said, the OR design is very flexible. Whether you're a hospital patient or outpatient patient, you go to the same set of ORs. The nurses can use all of those ORs in sets of two, three, five, ten, whatever they need. Other flexible spaces are the patient rooms. So the patient rooms are universal or acuity adaptable, which is something we talked about at Palomar too. That was the first, I think it was the first hospital in California that had ever tried to do acuity adaptable. It had not been adopted by licensing yet. It's actually still not adopted by licensing, but it's a good move for the, for an uncertain future, especially if, you know, we have another pandemic. This allows all of the rooms to be used as ICUs if needed. They can all be, I don't know if they can all be negative pressure, but they can all have the uptick in air changes that are needed to separate all the patients. Or they can be regular patient rooms, you know, med surge rooms. And the way that we divided the plan, the way that the HVAC system works, it makes it very flexible. 
It's compliant. So, yeah, you you could license it as an ICU. I think we did. Uh, we permit it as an ICU, ICU but and they can license. license. Yes, they exactly. will be able to license it as an ICU yes. if they ever need to. The patient platform was an unprecedented component of the program that Brian expanded on from a logistical point of view. It was a very innovative solution for the inpatient and outpatient surgery platform. It's basically a singular platform that spans from what is the jurisdiction of the university, spans to what is called HCI jurisdiction for acute care hospitals with only a, a seismic joint in between and a demising wall. And what that allows for is greater flexibility for the surgery platform to operate. And that was very innovative to unite those two inpatient and outpatient components and affords greater efficiencies in sterilization and prep and things like that. And so that too was pretty unprecedented. And so ensuring that we could navigate the agencies having jurisdiction on one side of the line is UCI jurisdiction. We're our own jurisdiction as as part of statute in the state of California for our projects. But on the other side of the line for the acute care for the state of California, it it is HCI. And so that innovation was brilliant, but also required a lot of coordination among the AHJs and the design teams to ensure that it was viable and and workable and coordinated and so on. Designed during the COVID-19 pandemic, the experience influenced innovative approaches that offer a glimpse into the future of healthcare. What's really unique about this, because we did the design during the pandemic, and what many providers found that patients didn't want to be in a waiting room. Right? Like they wanted to be outside, not next to the next COVID potential patient, mm-hmm. you know, COVID positive potential patient, right? Like, so we in this design have waiting rooms on elevated waiting rooms that are outdoor terraces. So you can be outside the cancer infusion floor has outdoor infusion base, mm-hmm. uh, basically, not infusion base, but, but outdoor I, space mm-hmm. where you can be outside, right? You can take your pole out there and be you, outside. You could. I mean, like, whoever wants that. It, that's pretty much a paradigm shift from regular kind of standard design of waiting areas in a, in a clinic or a hospital setting. That big plaza space in the middle, they also wanted it to be usable for not just, you know, public functionality or events or fundraising or any of that. So we tested all those scenarios, but they wanted it also to be ready if there is another pandemic that they can convert that and put a few triage tents up or do something. So there's utility supplied into the plaza for them to allow to do that. I don't know if you knew that UCI Health was one of the first, I think they were the first hospital in California that erected a field hospital when COVID broke out. So they had all the tents outside. They set it up in a matter of a couple of weeks and got the approval of Oshpod and other agencies. So they are very at the forefront of trying to be ready. You know, I know the CEO is very involved and adamant about, you know, being ready. So he pushed us a lot on these designs. 
one space that I've never done and I haven't done since is the lavender rooms. And I've talked about lavender rooms before. It's just when a client cares enough to put that space into the program, it's not a large space. It's not an expensive space, but you know, in healthcare space is always just taken up with something else. It's too precious, but to actually prioritize the emotional health of a staff member or, or patient or family or anybody to make that room is very unique and not very common. So of course we embraced it wholeheartedly. It's got the end room of the patient unit on each floor. So unobstructed views of the marsh. It's a small room. It's designed for when you like really just can't take it anymore emotionally. You have to get away. You got to go somewhere quiet with you with the comfy chair and something that just distracts you from, you know, the horrible thing that might have happened. So I hope that we can do another one again. They're they're um, important spaces, but not always very common. The UCI Health Irvine Medical Center decided to provide dedicated staff-only areas. Some level of separation from patients and families is soothing to them because they they really can't be themselves uh, for for a variety of reasons. You know, like there's privacy. There's just you're there as a support person. You're not there to share in the pain, but you do feel the pain. So the third level of the hospital is actually staff only. It has a lab, it has a pharmacy and a couple other staff only areas. And it has Good a term. terrace there. Yeah. It has yeah. a big lounge. So I think just having that no patient zone, you can kind of talk about anything you want on that floor. You don't have to make sure no one's around. Yeah. You can be with each other. There's a resident program there. So the, you know, the younger residents who are learning to be doctors can, might be taking things harder than, you know, more seasoned doctors can go there. And there's also a well-defined collaboration area on every floor, right? Like that is kind of like the biggest we've ever done. Screened from the screen somewhat from visitors. I mean, patients don't really go there. No. And 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 so that's also kind of unique to this facility because it's a teaching hospital as well. That's right. And so students and the medical staff can get together there to kind of talk among things and they also have a quiet place to work. Healing isn't confined to clinical spaces. It extends to soothing respite areas throughout the facility. These spaces are for patients, families, and staff alike. They include meditation gardens, rooms, yoga areas, and staff-only zones, creating a haven for mental and emotional well-being. When it comes to material selection, the team aimed for quality and warmth where possible to avoid the typical clinical look and feel that dominates so many hospitals. Well, as a baseline, we have our standard products we use that must be able to handle the healthcare environment. So they've got to be very cleanable. They've got to be durable, last 50 years if possible. Antimicrobial as possible. You know, um, non-VOC emitting as possible. I mean, all these things affect health. So, And then we need to kind of tailor this to the client and the design concept and what we're trying to do. We also look for things that can stand up to healthcare standards, but maybe don't evoke healthcare feelings. 
I'm like, you know, these corner guards or wall protection that always lets you know that you're in a hospital. You know, on UCI, we use a lot of um, this wall covering type of wall protection. It's called P3Tech. It curves. It looks more like textured wallpaper, but it does the job. Yeah. I think the a big thing, and this is not just true for the typology of a hospital, it's also true for most of the work we, we do because it's for mission-driven clients that hang on to their facility as long as I possibly can, right? Like, so we want to make it as durable as possible. So, so to have kind of things that are withstand the test of time, not just from a looks perspective, but also from a material durability perspective is really kind of important to combine those two things. So to like use natural material, pleasant uh, to touch and also to experience in a space is really a priority. And we try to introduce that as much as possible in those environments because it is a very plastic driven kind of place when you look around in a, in a, in a hospital. So to like get away from that at least a little bit, to me, makes a huge difference. And we try to introduce it then in the public spaces and where it's a little bit more forgiving and not the harshest chemicals are used always to clean things. <laughs> yeah. I, I have an example that, that I, I think Fabian's not going to really like, but <laughs> I'm going to take it anyway. We had to try to bring warmth to these public areas. Yeah. And we wanted to use wood, but we needed to use wood that could go inside, outside to inside. Yeah. It needed to be durable. It needed to be water resistant. Yeah. We used in these areas a metal panel that has a wood finish. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I say that he's not going to like it because I know that he likes to stay very true to, yeah. you know, the material and what it is. And it shouldn't be looking like something Pretend else something yeah. that it's not but you know i think in in these cases we need to make the decisions that yeah. accomplish the goals and are durable like durability is such a an important thing otherwise it's not going to look good after yeah there's very little money to clean and replace things in these environments mm -hmm. they are they want to put the money where it matters most to them which is providing good health care and not doing building maintenance. It's not a casino or a hotel. And so it's very important that we kind of strike the balance there. Stepping out to the exterior, the facade was approached with, again, sustainability and human well-being at the forefront. This method did, however, present an intricate challenge to find a balance between connecting to nature and competing with solar exposure. One of the most important things on this, on this design was already defined somewhat in the DPP and by the requirement that the university put forward. So they wanted uh, rather a lot of daylight in the building, but they also wanted an all-electric hospital. So they didn't want solar heat gain through the facade. So we had to really carefully look at that. And so we did... A lot of studies uh, that were basically simulation of what the sun would do to the exterior envelope and then develop the shading, exterior shading design that kind of optimized views and also shading the facade. 
in combination with a really with a very good glass that had a lot of visible light transmittance, which means that you don't have to have the interior lights on so much because the there's a lot of natural light coming into the building. Almost the, everywhere there's floor-to-ceiling glass in the facility. So the patient room is, is the first one of its kind, I would say, that we've ever done. There is column-to-column floor-to-ceiling glass in the patient room. So it really will feel like a hotel room mm-hmm. and a pretty fancy place that you're stepping into. And it really gives you also a tremendous connection to the outside world there, which is, you know, this San Joaquin Marsh that you want to look at. Yeah. We made life harder, too, for ourselves. Oh, God, this is really difficult. orienting to the towers you know, north-south. So we wanted to make sure that everyone had a view and not just the side facing the marsh. So we oriented north-south so you would have views up and down the marsh, but that's not ideal for... um, Solar exposure. Right. But we had to weigh all these goals against each other to see what was important. And almost always, you know, the marsh, the marsh. The marsh is the driver. The marsh is the differentiator. Yeah. We just got to make it work anyway. And we did. Uh, and so we were able to accomplish both of those things, but it does come with a very significant investment into exterior sun shading and solar protection devices on the outside. And there's varying strategies chosen. There's fritted glass in some portions on the ground floor because we didn't want the solar sh- shades there because that was really important to have like a really like unobstructed kind of connection to the ground plane. And the birds. Yeah, we and had the to birds. protect the birds yes. because the birds couldn't see the glass. So <laughs> right, that's another one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we learned a lot about bird strikes that they actually uh, happen like in the first twenty feet above the ground. That's where most birds hit the glass. So yeah, there was uh, all kinds of things that we did to, in order to make the outside world a shaded and pleasant and light filled space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was really fun to to work on it. Because we had really great partner that did the pricing and did the fabrication of it. They were tremendous. You want to say who that is? Yeah. Enclose was the curtain wall contractor. And they did an absolutely terrific job. Their team was impeccable in terms of this follow through. And also the execution and quality now is, is amazing. Shading also brought about practical challenges that the design team had to figure out. I think probably to develop a meaningful shading strategy was probably the most involved from an engineering standpoint of view, because we have a three-foot sun shading device and then an 18-inch sun shading device on a lot of the facade, and to hold those off and then have the window cleaning system pass it all by is really tricky. And so a lot of consideration went into that. I think the other part that was interesting about it where those are located and how you how much of a difference it make if you make something shorter or longer move it up and down that was and still maintaining the view was kind of like a constant battle right like so we we went through several iterations on that i can't count many maybe 20 like moving it another inch or two here Uh, pulling it out another three inches, you know, and then, oh, no, the window cleaning cannot pass by anymore. So it went back and forth. 
with our engineering partners that did really a full-on simulation of the uh, solar heat gain. And so it was tricky. Another part was to get actually stone on the building. I mean, you remember, right? <laughs> like we have two stair towers that are kind of like significant beacon elements that kind of anchor the two buildings the in the side mm -hmm. and, and are part of the entry sequence to both. And it's a unitized curtain wall that has now stone on that has stone on it on on the individual curtain wall panels, and that was quite tricky to to do that. But it was it looks really good. Mm -hmm. It's like they did a perfect job. The hospital sustainability features extend beyond the building design. Sustainability measures were also taken to preserve and enhance the natural environment. Being next to the marsh meant we needed to think about sustainability differently. We did the checklist. We The hospital is uh, currently at LEED Platinum and the cancer center is at LEED Gold. So we went through the regular, you know, baseline criteria to meet. And of course, the all electric was a stretch goal. In addition, the just being next to that marsh, we definitely didn't want to leave those were there before us in a worse shape than when we got there. And by that, I mean, you know, the birds we talked about, the turtles, the native species, the plants. And the so we, when we had first, we first thought that not touching it would be the best, you know, just, just leave it as it was. But actually we worked with UCI biologists from their academic side, and they helped us to understand that they actually wanted that water. And they also made a, they made use of the bio, Filtration, a retention yeah, yeah. basin, right? Yeah, we have like a little retention basin where the stormwater comes out. And so they want to use that as a teaching environment because the birds and other animals will be attracted by, you know, standing water or by the water that kind of like slowly slips in the ground there. So the biologists saw the retention basin as a teaching moment for their student population that comes there to do, you know, learn research in the natural environment. and so. We designed it so it's kind of has like there's a couple of benches around it. So a group of students can be there with their docent for an extended amount of time and experience what's going on in this little area where the ground is more moist than in other parts of the marsh. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell the favorite turtle mm -hmm. story because <laughs> these turtles, they're pretty ugly turtles, but anyway, <laughs> they're also <laughs> precious and important, but they crawl up. And so they kept crawling up and if they crawl up into campus, they will get trampled. So uh, this is such a small thing, but we designed a little turtle barrier that's continuous. So they cannot yeah. climb up into the campus and get trampled. It's, I think it's two feet high. It's not something that yeah. blocks any view. 18 inches. 18 inches. Yeah. Right. Just little things like that, that we had to think about just being neighbors with this natural preserve. But of course, I mean, all the healthcare points for access to views and nature and healing effects are, you know, just extraordinary in this site. Construction of this new campus has begun. And Brian, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Design and Construction Services and Campus Architect, provided us with an update. Done what's called topping out of the hospital tower, which is placement of the highest piece of steel, placed uh, several of the concrete decks, the ambulatory care center, which is called the Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer and Ambulatory Care Center, 
will be done first, and that'll be done in basically March of next year. And then the hospital will follow in mid-2025. In support of those two buildings is a central utility plant, which is an all-electric central utility plant that is really unprecedented in, at least in the country, if not the world. So we're really proud of that all-electric central utility plant. That portion of the project, as well as the parking structures, will come up when the ambulatory care center opens. They're a part of that support system, the infrastructure for, for that project. So the Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer and Ambulatory Care Center comes up first with the central utility plant and the parking structure, followed about a year later or so by the hospital itself. Construction, as always, taught valuable lessons, but not necessarily the ones that will prepare you for the next project, because in healthcare, change is constant. Healthcare just never stops changing in construction. You have this new piece of equipment or this new technology. It's unavoidable that you're going to change stuff. Right. And as UCI Health, the, a very, you know, I know they don't like to say cutting edge, but a very, you know, top notch, forward thinking academic medical center, they want the best this and that and the newest technology and even the little camera and all those things come with changes that we have had to make during construction, which costs more, which takes longer, which is painful. <laughs> but again, it's the lesson I've learned is that, you know, they need to be the best. So we just need to deal with it. Yeah. I would say what was really striking to me is that, you know, there was a very good foundational document that we based our design around and evolved it uh, with together with the contractor that it was a design build project, very fast paced. And then we found out that, you know, as we start construction, that there is actually changes that the client kind of like, they held back a little bit and then said, okay, then now we want this and we want this and we want this. Right. Like, so they, it kept piling on. And that is very challenging then to incorporate all that or revisit things and redo stuff. That was really hard on the team. I think many people worked very late hours to kind of accommodate those, those design changes. I don't recommend putting an MRI on a second floor because that would be something if you can avoid it, don't do it because it's really involved. It requires you to kind of isolate it from the rest of the structure so the floor can't touch the floor directly so there has to be on dampers and a second slab and then all of the walls also and the ceiling have to be separated from the rest of the structure because the vibration that exists in a, in a building can't transfer to that imaging uh, equipment you know i think it wanted to be on that floor. yeah and because so, that was the rest of the imaging department yeah we you know? had to make those Trade-offs, again, we have yeah. to make the tough decision right. and do it. So I, I actually think it is the right place for it, but yes. It, it was, is it the was right hard. place it for hard. it. It's mm -hmm. the right place for from a departmental standpoint view, yeah. but from a, you know efficiency of construction standpoint of view, it's not necessarily yeah. the right place. If you right? can avoid it. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Put Don't put it on the, put it on slam on rate. Don't uh, make a very, very complicated linear accelerator into a doubly as complicated <laughs> MRI linear accelerator while in construction. That yes. was that was also hard, really yeah. hard. Yeah. But again, you know, 
we had a young team member who was just tenacious work on it and made it work. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Three, I don't know, six foot thick? Uh, I think they're four, four foot thick. I mean, thick like concrete. enormously thick concrete yeah. walls, right? Like, so, and, and they use the Lego it. blocks yeah. things to, to build uh, that. The, uh, the, uh, the uh, concrete, uh, what's it called? Compressed concrete block or something. Yeah. The super heavy ones. Brian provided additional insight from an owner-operator perspective, including the location of the MRI equipment. Something like that on, on the second floor. As you mentioned, you have vibration and shielding and weight and all the infrastructure that goes with it. Those types of devices, pieces of equipment, really belong on grade. And so it does present challenges. But when you're talking about a facility that will be around for, you know, 50 or 75 years, and you're talking about operational efficiencies. The operational efficiencies really far outweigh the kind of premiums you might have to pay in construction to be able to handle that kind of decision. And so it really comes down to flow, patient flows, nurse flows, provider flows, and comes down to what's the most efficient operation because that'll pay for itself over and over and over again over the course of decades versus a, you know, sort of a more short-sighted decision that could potentially compromise patient flows and, and things like that. And, you know, hospitals all over the country suffer from inefficiencies due to how they develop over time, you know, renovations and added needs and added technology and things like that. And so it's our opinion that that out of the gates, we got to do the very best we can to set us up to minimize those sorts of efficiencies that, that are inevitable. They will come over time, you know, as technology changes. I mean, during construction, the technology you know, advances and changes. And, you know, that operational efficiency just far outweighs the the premium costs and the technical challenges that come with making a decision like that. UCI Health's commitment to its mission is embodied in every detail of its hospital. It's a place where groundbreaking medical research, adaptable designs, and a dedication to the well-being of patients, families, and staff coalesce. It's not just a hospital, it's a glimpse into the future of healthcare. But before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. As principals, I was curious what Gina and Fabian thought leaders should focus on in order to grow their firms. Everyone says the workforce is changing, you know, and it's easy to say generationally this group is different than generationally that group. But I feel like what makes us passionate about work doesn't really change. You know, you want to do something that no one's ever done before, or you want to satisfy your curiosity about something or work as a team, you know, connect with people and achieve something amazing. So I don't know. I think we, we just need to focus on the people that we have a very talented group of people, make sure that they are able to each grow and develop. I run both the mentor program here and also something called co-university, which is both of those things are about sort of individual growth and development and finding your own 
passion and voice. Because I think those things don't really change. And um, as long as we focus on our people and making them work well in teams, it's kind of the thing we've always done that's worked so far. For me is to prepare our practice and ourselves as an industry for the challenges ahead that come from climate change, I think are paramount for us to survive in the business and to actually thrive in the business. If we can't respond with the stuff that we're doing to the challenges that we're going to have ahead of us, let alone just the code, the building code getting more stringent, but also things that kind of like will be surprising expectations all of a sudden that clients will have towards us. And not everyone is as supportive as UCI was, right? Was like, and being so aligned in, the, in terms of the goals. So it's, it's like how you can fight that fight in a way that is convincing to others and that is also enriching to the practice. That is kind of like a big question I have and some strategies maybe... I can think of, but, you know, who knows if it's going to be successful. I really enjoyed this conversation with Gina and Fabian, and I hope to have them back again soon. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. One has to be willing to volunteer their service if, if you can uh, and so that gives me great satisfaction if I do something where I re it's really pure, purely me kind of like putting myself out there and putting myself forward or also the practice, you know, and sometimes with the support of the practice that happens here, that is an enriching experience. I think I wish I could do more of it because it gives me joy and it also fills my soul with energy. So if I can do that more, that would be wonderful. It's really, truly kind of like having a project that is of that nature. I also, you know, feel like you know, world domination is like, it comes from within. It's this little world. <laughs> to think about the whole world is, is hard. But in this little world, I love what I do. I love finding ideas that come from other people and bringing, bringing people together to talk about and solve something that seems, you know, so hard. But I've come to see that it's about like being a whole person too. You know, I have I have two kids and I've been trying to take them every weekend to something natural. You uh -huh. know, cuz I feel like they kids first of all kids hate natural stuff. <laughs> they only want to work, you know, play on their phones and stuff. But I also think that, obviously, we all learn to love it. And we learn stuff from being in nature that you don't know how to do by yeah. Googling. You know, you like where to step so you don't fall or what to eat or not, what not to eat or, you know, that kind of stuff. That's a whole other world of knowledge that helps you be a better thinker and a better friend and a better family member. So I've been trying to spend more time on becoming a whole person and encouraging other people That's nice. to be a whole person. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, 
Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.